You know what I want. <laughs> I want to talk to me. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm your Samson Folk, and today a very special guest, somebody who's coming on for the second time because I enjoyed their first time around so, so much, Evan Gualberto, who is one of my favorite YouTube channels, always highlighting some of the underrated aspects of players' games, and in some cases, the overrated aspects of their games as well. But just know he's covering the full picture. Evan, how are you doing today, man? Hanging in there, hanging in there. I suppose that's a repeat from our, our pre-podcast conversation before we were recording. Hanging in, trying to make the best of things. Absolutely. Well, it's also trying to recover, too, from, I mean, the Game 7 last night against, you know, Jazz Nuggets came down to the very last shot. I, I, don't, know that I'm, I don't know that I'm over it yet. Yeah, that was, that was pretty wild. I was watching it. Who are you pulling for, by the way? Because I wanted Denver. Who did you want to win that series? You know, I'm not sure. I was watching it and I reacted very I I reacted very loudly and my partner asked, So did your team win? Did the team you were rooting for pull through? And I took a second and I realized I didn't I guess I just didn't want it to end. Yeah, I suppose that's apropos. I felt kind of similar at the end of it all. I did want Nuggets because, as you and I have talked about, you know, ad nauseum, Jamal Murray and his Canadian cohorts have a special place in my part, obviously. And we've talked about how exciting the Canadian national team might be, especially if they get everybody participating. So there was that. I was pulling for that in some way. And also, I'm a huge Gary Harris fan. I like Tory Craig a lot. Jeremy Grant is great. Jokic. I think the Nuggets are a really likable team, despite having, you know, a bit of maybe too much swagger at times. But also the Jazz became uber likable in this series to me, too. And so at the end, I found myself, I did want the Nuggets to take it at the end, maybe mostly because of what I said about Jamal Murray being Canadian, but also because my friend Beto asked me who I thought would win. And I said Denver. So I just wanted to be correct in that prediction. But uh <laughs> I think I was just hoping for shot making. So every time Donovan Mitchell, he had that little Euro in the lane, scoop to the bucket. Jamal Murray pulled up. He went off the window. I was just clapping my hands going like, oh, hell yeah. This is basketball, man. This is why I'm watching it. It was, it was something else. I can't believe. I, was, I don't know that I was actually expecting this, but what I wanted was dueling 60-point games. That's, you know, that's what I really wanted. Yeah, like a, a gunslinger's affair. Like Jamal Murray, Donovan Mitchell walking out into the road, the gravel crushing beneath their feet, turning, giving each other those steely-eyed looks, kind of like at the end of the good, the bad, and the ugly. I don't know who the third guy in the in the triangle would be in the, the three-way shootout, but somebody. But regardless, Evan, I've brought you on here to talk about playoffs, and since... You know, we've, we've got to take a little time to digest that seven-game series. There's a series in where wherein the Raptors are down 0-2. But let's touch on the series that brought us to that point before we get into it. Boston versus the 76ers, Raptors versus Nets. Which do you feel like you want to talk about first? 
while I was fully locked into Raptors Nets, even though the great, speaking of gunslingers, Joe Harris left, what was it, two games in? Halfway through the, the series? So it, it still remained fairly competitive for the Nets, or they still competed, rather. But Rap, Raptors Nets, probably. Okay, so when we're talking about that, Joe Harris... The way that the Nets played offensively, he was a huge part of that. When he left, basically all of their offensive punch went out the window. They just weren't as dangerous from a lot of places on the floor, and it made their defensive style less viable as well. So let's talk about that. Let's try and pick up some cues from the Nets series going into the Celtics series. What have you seen as far as carryover from the Nets series? And something that comes to mind for me is, Marcus all being picked on on offense just the way that teams are able to play a very aggressive brand of defense elsewhere because they're laying off of him so much even though he's a seven foot one man they're not pressing him in the paint they're also not respecting his outside shot did you think that would be a precursor of what was to come in the Celtics series has that surprised you at all well it, it hasn't surprised me in the sense that Mark, skinny Marcus Gasol, I should say, he hasn't really looked the same. He hasn't been the type of player where you know he is a world World Cup winner, won all of the things you can win with Spain, except for an Olympic gold medal. But he is just the type of player I expect to have been able to come out of whatever funk he is in already. And the fact that we are six games into the playoffs and he just doesn't look like the same Marcus Gasol that we saw earlier this year, let alone, you know, when skinny Marcus Gasol was in Memphis, I, I'm just surprised at how he hasn't been able to bounce back yet. So are you surprised more at the lack of shooting or the lack of presence in the paint? Because, you know, in game two, even though he did foul out, I thought his defensive performance was actually pretty good and much better than Serge's. Definitely much better than Serge's. But when we're talking about what he's providing offensively, it was just touch passes around the arc, never looking dangerous or potent at any point in time. Are you more surprised that he's not able to punish a guy like Jalen Brown on a switch in the paint? Or are you more surprised that he's shooting such a poor percentage from from downtown? I believe I'm more surprised by his shooting just because he's not, at times it feels like he's not even looking at the rim. It's one of those things where when he catches the ball, he's he's looking to get rid of that thing quick. And that's not the Marc Gasol in Toronto that I have grown accustomed to seeing. He catches the ball he will wait patiently he'll make reads he'll make great passes um the two-man game that him and kyle lowry have where it's kind of just pinging back and forth between them it's that's been missing so far in terms of productivity yeah and so when i see that two-man game Obviously, a huge caveat is that Mark is shooting like 18% from downtown. He's there's been six games, as you said, in the playoffs so far, 
In three of the games, he's made one three-pointer. In three of the games, he's made zero. He's shooting horribly from the line. And the Raptors, I think they operate really, really well when Marcus Gasol is going two for five from downtown. Like, that's a really optimal number. And sometimes you get lucky. Maybe he has, like, a four for nine game. That's a huge deal. That kind of revolutionizes the way that the teams have to defend the Raptors is just his ability to pop it from downtown. We're seeing less and less attempts from him. And that means that teams, especially the Celtics, who play fantastic perimeter defense, can get really, really aggressive in how they're hedging and recovering to Kyle Lowry, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Fleet. You being a coach, I want to lean on that a little bit. If you see a counter there, what is it other than Marcus Gasol hitting shots? Because it is the hedge and recover so far away from Gasol that is making things so difficult. It is the fact that he isn't dangerous anywhere. And so we've even seen him go downhill a little bit more to try and get anything moving there, like a guy who's making a pass on the short roll. But he still doesn't have a ton of gravity there. What is the adjustment in your mind? I feel as if the the high pick and roll isn't necessarily something I'd look to go to with Mark. You know, they run, they run that corner offense. I think one of the things that the Celtics could navigate, but you could use it for a few to generate a few looks here and there is having him going to pin down in the corner. Norm Powell, we we talk we have talked about our love for him. You've called him the pin down king. Anytime you run that pin down action, it turns into a it can turn into a mini pick and roll down on the down on the sides there. And I think just varying where he the the looks as a screener, just varying his looks as a screener can open things up for him. Ideally, my answer would be get him in the low post, right? Because he has made a career there and he can be very good down there. But I just, I think the Celtics are too quick, too fast, too long to really let a mismatch linger for Mark in the post. So getting him to the free throw line, I feel like would get him out of his funk especially in game, in the flow of the game, rather. But I just, you know, switching up where you deploy him. That's interesting. I haven't thought of going to the post kind of demonstratively to make a point of, hey, this guy, he can he can bully in the post. He's been this player. So it sounds like maybe you transfer some of those screening actions over to Siakam and you transfer some of those post possessions that Siakam has had to Gasol to try and wean advantages from, or sorry, glean advantages from different places. I, I hadn't thought of that. What do you think about, we, we've talked about this just personally between you and I, what do you think about the Raptors? They don't have, speaking of gunslingers, Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray, but they don't even have a guy you brought up, like a Jordan Clarkson type mold, a guy who's going downhill on the pick and roll looking to score. And Kyle Lowry has been pretty good at drawing free throws. He's been good at getting into the teeth of the Celtics defense. But the thing is, he uses the pick and roll more as an accessory to playmaking rather than to scoring. 
And Fred VanVleet uses the pick and roll more than Kyle Lowry, but less effectively so. So when we think of these two players and we think of how the Celtics are defending it, the Celtics are defending the pick and roll to my eye like a team that knows the Raptors want to play make out of it. Do you, what do you, when you're talking about, and I know you said you wouldn't look to the pick and roll with Gasol, but do you think there's an adjustment there in how Fred Van Vliet or Kyle Lowry look for their own shots and how they attack the pick and roll to try and punish the Celtics for what they're doing? Or do you think the Celtics have identified a hole in the Raptors offense in their two point scoring? Well, Brad Stevens is, Brad Stevens and Nick Nurse are both geniuses. Let me just say that. But what the Celtics have done in, you know, targeting the Raptors from getting long and vertical contesting Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry's, you know, quote-unquote open threes is, you know, Rob Williams is jumping straight up, impairing... Fred's line of vision to the rim. And I think I think that affects their shots. One of the things I saw last night in game two was late in game, I believe they went, it was a Ibaka, Lowry, high pick and roll, and they went under. Jason Tatum went under. And Kyle was... Kyle was already looking, he was downhill, trying to get downhill, looking to drive instead of recognizing that he had, that Tatum had gone under and pulling up. Granted, it's still a tough shot because of how long Tatum is with the contest, but I think the fact Kyle didn't recognize or didn't take advantage of the fact that he went under is something that has the... Raptors in their heads a little bit about it's they make you the Celtics are doing largely what the Raptors have done to teams all across the regular season is they make you think that there is an advantage where there's really not because of their length and so I don't know if that necessarily answers your question but that is something no I am noticing. I think that's a that's a great answer I think and that's that leads me into you know, something I talked about on the Reaction Podcast as well is that Lowry, Siakam, Van Vliet, Gasol, all these guys who shoot. I know Lowry's sitting like a little bit below 36%, maybe even Pascal fell a little bit below it. But still, on pull-ups, Lowry is a good three-point shooter. He's definitely above average. He's, I, I would say, above the 70th percentile. Certainly not Marcus Smart level, because Marcus Smart is, you know, a godsend when pulling up. And apparently... In this series, also a catch-and-shoot option. So, shout out to my guy, Marcus. But the thing is, Lowry, as you said, not pulling up in the in those possessions if the guy goes under. One of the biggest things that has built Kyle Lowry's career, why he is so potent as a player and why he's able to rumble downhill so often is because of that threat that he's going to pull up. And as you said, I think you make a great point that the Celtics are a gap team. They shoot the gap that you think is open. And they're so long that they recover in everything that they allow. And so that's a really tough team to to defend. And the Raptors are a similar team too. The Raptors, there's this illusion that these threes are defended or open. And you never know which it is really because the recovery and the rotations are so rapid. 
And when I'm thinking about how the Celtics have been defending the Raptors, and the Raptors, despite having quote-unquote open jumpers shooting so terribly, not as many of them are as open as you would think. There's just that little extra level of pressure because the Celtics are really good on the chase for most of the game. So that guy like Kyle Lowry, who shoots 0 for 7 last night, he feels the pressure. Now every pick and roll, he's like, I got to turn the corner because that's what I've been doing all game. All of a sudden Tatum drops out and he just doesn't take that. And when he was giving chase, you know, Lowry, he's pulling up, but there's a guy breathing down his neck and a huge guy, not only in contest on the one side, the guy who's dropping, but the guy who's climbing over top to try and sweep him from the back. So looking at these things, it just puts guys like Fred and Kyle in a really tough position. And not only that, but they've extended how far they're shooting from because of the length on the Celtics. So you see a guy like Fred, no longer is he just pulling up right from the three-point line. We're seeing him pull up from four, five feet back from it. And that's a good adjustment because that's something he's worked on. It was famous in the Rico Hines runs. That's something he brings to the floor. But that's something that he has to adjust to now. And that's something that the Celtics have done. They've either pushed the Raptors, Pascal Siakam, Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet into the middle of the floor to the nail where none of them are particularly good scorers. Kyle Lowry being the best because of his ability to draw fouls. But the Celtics have squished them into spaces where, hey, you have to shoot from downtown in a shot you're not comfortable with or you have to try and play make from the middle. And the thing is, the Raptors have very little in the way of playmakers in the middle. Pascal Siakam had a spell this year where he was Kind of looking like DeMar DeRozan, like he does that crab dribble in the middle, spray to the corner. But with the Celtics being that gap team, and they have such great coverage on the back end, the Raptors are really struggling to find spots. But, you know, this may be a little bit too pessimistic. Let's let's make the case now. It's 0-2. The Raptors are in a tough spot, but they've been here before. They have the pedigree. They've done it. Of course, they don't have Kawhi, but if you're going to make the case that the Raptors are going to come back into it, what would you like to see? And what would the Celtics have to stop succeeding at? Well, I think that decision-making from their their key guys, it's something that's going to have to get a little better at. And I know that they have been flustered by what the Celtics are doing. But yesterday I noticed Marcus Smart's first three-pointer it came off that um, Fred Van Vliet, he turned the corner and he got to the cup and there was, I believe there were two on him and Tice was the one who got the monster block and that led to the Jason Tatum run out and Marcus Smart, you know, filled to the wing. He got an open three and that's what I think got him going. Would he have kept shooting even if he missed that one? Absolutely, because, you know, Brad Stevens has been talking Marcus Smart into shooting threes, shooting threes, shooting threes. And so eventually, when you see one go in, it's just, it's a release. And, you know, the barrage started after that. Another thing by way of decision-making is when they went to that zone late game, and I believe it was Marcus Smart again who put up a contested three, it missed. Grant Williams came away with the offensive rebound, which happens in a zone, I understand. But he kicked 
it back up to Jason Tatum. And Jason Tatum catches the ball. He stares a hole into Kemba Walker, right, with Pascal as the closest defender to the ball. And Pascal shades to Kemba instead of to the ball. And don't get me wrong, Pascal is a world-class defender. I love Pascal Siakam. He just made the wrong choice in that moment. And that was, that was it. It was just a mistake in the moment. But it's little things like that that kill a team. And so in terms of making adjustments, making changes, I've read and seen that maybe the answer is Pascal Siakam and OG as your biggest players on the floor and going, you know, really small. But I don't necessarily, I think that feeds more into the Celtics hands because their five going small, I believe are better than the Raptors five going small. And so I think it's just a matter of cleaning up the little things here and there because people, People get hot. They do. Fred Van Vliet, that entire postseason run last year, that championship postseason run, you know, he was hot for most of the playoffs. But eventually the Celtics bench is going to cool down. It's a matter of can the Raptors take advantage of when that happens. And um, one other thing I did want to talk about is last night late game when Kyle Lowry got fouled, and went to the free throw line, they were running their hammer action. And I, it was Fred getting to that corner on that, on that hammer action. I would have loved to have seen Kyle go up. You know, I know he got fouled and went to the free throw line, but I would have loved to seen Kyle go up and then hit Fred in the corner on that hammer. If, if that would have gone in, I think, you know, obviously different ball game, but, but I just, I love to see the Raptors and their hammer play run successfully. Yeah, well, I think you make good points is that I do think I agree with you as far as the going small. I think there's times in the game where you do it. There should be time in every basketball game where Pascal Siakam can sneak in like a four-minute stretch at the five, especially since there's so many opportunistic times in a game where Let's say there's a four-minute stretch where Serge and Gasol can play together. There's a four-minute stretch where OG and Pascal are the front court. There are opportunities for that, and Nurse, being a good coach, should be able to find them when it's advantageous, when it's not. But overall, I agree with you. I think that going small plays more to the Celtics. Gasol, as bad as he was offensively last night, I thought he was really, really incredibly good defensively. I thought that he was great defending the rim. I think that had he not fouled out, I think that they probably win the game. It's just, he was such a difference maker in what he, like just the way that he negotiates the space between ball handler and rim runner, especially since the Celtics have kind of gone away from having Tice space out. I know he he did in game one, but in game two, that wasn't really his game. He hit that one mid-range shot, so did Robert Williams. But they still, they want their big guy rim running. I think Gasol is really good at negotiating that space. So I'd like to see him stick it. And you just hope to God that something comes around on offense. Like, really, cross your fingers. And as far as the Celtics, 
like you said, um, getting on transition with Van Vliet, trying to take that opportunity, leading to a runout. The Raptors have to be as conscientious denying transition as the Celtics are. That's been a huge disparity, I think, is that the Celtics, you see, they're really mindful of getting back. And the Raptors sometimes kind of sloppy in their transition defense. They need to shore that up as well, because while the Celtics are seemingly a better half-court offense right now, they're also a very good transition offense. And when they get out in transition, they, they've they been killing the Raptors. The Raptors need to shore that up as well. But maybe most importantly, keep pressing your advantage on the inside. I know that Pascal Siakam, everybody's complaining about the post-ups. I still think they need to be a decent amount of post-ups in the game. But you need to get them in motion. Maybe you run a flex cut into a post-up for like, you know, 12 feet out or 10 feet out instead of just these cold post-ups at the free throw line extended. It just doesn't make sense. And with how long the Celtics are, they can just track them all the way in. So there's a lot of things the Raptors can do, although most of them, I think, operate as micro adjustments rather than these big macro adjustments, these huge adjustments. But do you have any... uh? Any other points on the series as far as before we get out of here? Well, just two things. Jason Tatum, if he passes like he did, if he consistently oh, passes he like he did awesome. in game two, that, that, that's a whole different problem, right? And the second thing is I, will not, I won't stand for any Pascal Siakam slander. Right? I'm seeing it now. You know, a lot of people are complaining about him being the number one option, but I will not have it. If you go on my YouTube channel and say bad things about Pascal, I'm blocking you. That's just how it is. <laughs> the the one I don't understand is the the DeMar DeRozan comp. DeMar DeRozan is my favorite player. Like, DeMar came in when I really started watching Raptors basketball. He was, in 2009, he's a draft pick. I watched him play. I watched him become the NBA's leading scorer overseas because they played those two games in London. And then the Raptors, you know, the the PR always used that <laughs> that stat. Like, it was very meaningful. But I love DeMar. I think his game is so much fun to watch. But comparing DeMar and Pascal, really fruitless. Makes no sense because DeMar is really bad defensively. Like, he is so bad defensively, man. He does not care about that end of the floor. And Pascal, as you said earlier, he is a world-class defender. And that is one of the things that is so lovable about Pascal is he is a guy who this year operated as a superstar offensively, 23-5-5, and basically. Well, 23-5-4. But he never, <laughs> dropped on the, he never dropped on the defensive end. That's that's very impressive. You've seen we we're going to talk about Donovan Mitchell later, but Donovan Mitchell is a guy who was a defender at Louisville and was profiling as a guy who is long arms, quick, rapid. He's going to defend in the NBA, but he he it completely dropped off for him once he started becoming an offensive fulcrum. A lot of players do that. Bradley Beal wasn't always this bad a defender, but Pascal Siakam, one of the few guys I think who never drops on the defensive end. So he deserves a lot of credit for that. But, man, let's talk about the Heat and the Bucks. And so the thing for me is that I've typically thought that the Heat were more or less not that great. I thought that they show their hand all the time. 
that they don't have much in the way of adjustments, especially when we're talking about against a team like the Bucks. And here's a hint, because I know you read Minute Basketball or Minute Basketball. That's what I'm writing about this week. But what what am I missing? Because I, I do love Jimmy Butler. I love Bam Adebayo. But I just thought that they don't have, that they're too reliant on specialists in the rest of their lineup. What am I missing that allowed them to beat the Bucks, Or is it that the Bucks are underperforming? Like, what what have you perceived from this matchup so far? Well, that's a great question. I the both of them. I think it's it's a little bit of both. Is that the one thing that has always impressed me about Eric Spolstra and his Miami teams are that they are relentless. They know who they are and they will attack you east to west, second side action, third side action, nonstop. And they will go until they find a weakness. One of the things I noticed in the game yesterday is that, or, or well, I should say, one of the adjustments that I would make if I were Bud is to, no disrespect to number 28 of the Miami Heat, um, Andre Iguodala is not a shooter. There is no reason to treat him as a shooter if... You have Giannis guarding him, which happened a couple of times throughout the game. If you have Giannis guarding him and Iguodala is in the corner, Giannis is in the short corner, you, ha- you can give help off of that. And I think maybe ordinarily Giannis would use his insane length and stride to cover that ground and contest guys at the rim, especially Jimmy Butler. But in game one... He was more toned down. Maybe that's because he was battling foul trouble. But there were times where Giannis refused to give help off of either Adebayo or Igudala when he was, you know, in the short corner. And that, it just didn't make sense to me that he was doing that. Because even if you're in foul trouble, rotate over, make Bam beat you with the baseline jumper. Make Iguodala beat you with a with you know a catch and shoot corner three, or make him catch it. Give him twenty seconds to think about it. Take one dribble and pull up for three. That if you lose with that, then I I think you live with it because you know as a coach it's all about taking something away. You can't you can't ever take everything away. Then you give up everything. But you have to take something away and. I would much rather live with those those jumpers from those guys as opposed to Jimmy Butler getting to the basket or Goran Dragic getting to the basket. I think you make the point to make about this series so far is that a lot of people, Isaiah Thomas, the world-renowned defender that he is included, <laughs> oh man, Giannis, Giannis has to guard Butler. But you hit on the actual truth, the truth that was sitting in front of everybody's eyes is that Giannis should not be the point of attack defender on Butler. That makes no sense. That dude was sitting on the bench, and that was Wesley Matthews, who probably should have been on the floor. But you highlight the most important thing. Giannis failed in help side a few times. He wasn't at his peak defensively, and that doesn't mean that you just stick him on Butler. It's just he needed to play better in his role in certain moments. So I think you highlight something important there that a lot of people missed out on. So thank you for clarifying that. But also you hit on something else that's super important. Game one, by far the biggest adjustment that the Heat could make 
I've been harping on this for quite some time, is that Goran Dragic is so many steps ahead of Kendrick Nunn, it's not even funny. Like, Kendrick Nunn, I, I understand why they put him in. It happens all the time where you put a superior guard on the bench so they can run the bench units and those hybrid units, and you get a lot of value out of that, especially over a regular season. But the Heat had two huge adjustments to make, right? Bam at the five and Dragic at the one. They've made both of those adjustments. They're significantly better for it, and especially because Bam is you know, a badass. I know you love Bam. I love Bam, too. He's a fantastic player. But Dragic, a player who I respect but do not like because he is a weasel, but a great at basketball weasel, as I've tweeted before. <laughs> what like what is twenty seven six and five from Dragic on really efficient shooting, sixty percent from the floor, even at a pull up triple? We're talking about a guy who's supposed to be well past his prime, but he's playing with that same slithe guile that he's just unstoppable. Did you expect him to be able to negotiate and read the Bucks defense like this? And do you think Bledsoe's absence is especially important for this matchup? I guess I should say the reason for the pause there is I wanted to jump in with I like Goran Dragic. I'm a I'm a big fan. I have a I have a number of videos just because of we've talked about this off the pod and everybody who's ever talked to me knows this. I love Steve Nash. He was my guy. I love those Suns team. So Goran will always have a special place in my heart because he was the backup to Nash in the later years. I think he's always had this ability to attack defenses when they when they have, you know, on the second side. When things go east to west and he's he's attacking defense that has already shifted, he is in his element. He makes great reads. He's a he's a solid to, you know, he's past his prime. So as a primary playmaker, he's fine in his role bringing up the ball, calling sets, getting as in places, but he's truly in his element when he's attacking you after you've already shifted. And I think Eric Bledsoe being out does play a big part in it because Bledsoe being in quickens the pace for the Bucks, both offensively and defensively. Bledsoe being the guy on ball, you know, the the tip of the spear, as it were. He stops so many things from happening before they even have a chance to happen. That's how quick he is. That's how great his recognition is. And that's how well he his athleticism. So, and especially the fact that Bledsoe and Dragic were teammates in Phoenix, so they know each other on a deeper level. I feel as if when Bledsoe comes back, we'll see Dragic's ability to get into the gaps like he has. It'll it'll go down a little bit. No, I think that's a uh, I think that's an astute point. Definitely is that Dragic. He, he operates best when he's able to change paces at will. And I think you bring up a great point that Bledsoe quickens the pace everywhere. And especially Dragic, a guy who goes downhill against a team like the Bucks. If you have Bledsoe chasing over top, I think it fundamentally changes a lot of those possessions, especially since Dragic is so good at stopping and starting. 
it's a lot harder to be chill in the lane when Bledsoe is on your hip because he is a maniac. Like, he is rapid defensively, and he'll get after it. So definitely I'm looking forward to whenever Bledsoe comes back to see how that matchup works out. What do you think about statistics, man? The damn statistics, right, is Pascal Siakam, Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet, Marcus All. They can't shoot. And I'm not going to talk about Marcus Smart because Marcus Smart can shoot. I've been a firm believer in Marcus Smart for some time from downtown. But it's like CJ McCollum said, he's strapped. And I love that term. He's strapped. And the thing is, low key, and I said this in my top 100, I said, Jimmy Butler is a jump shooter late in games. Don't ever forget. And as it turns out, he was a jump shooter late against the Bucks. How do we go from Giannis, 30% shooter from downtown during the regular season, on almost five attempts a game, Jimmy Butler, 22% shooter from downtown during the regular season, on like two attempts a game. One guy in the playoffs cannot shoot for what it's worth. The other guy is, is suddenly a heat pump. What do you think about this phenomenon? Like, how would you describe the situation that happens in, in that area? Well, I want to give credit to, I can't remember where I saw it, but I think there was somebody tweeted or somebody posted something somewhere saying that maybe Jimmy Butler was shooting poorly in the regular season on purpose so he'd be this open in the playoffs. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, is what they said. And, you know, I don't think it's that, but... I do think it's that Jimmy is great at getting to the basket. You've, you've talked about this a bunch is with him, with Kyle, they manufacture trips to the free throw line out of next to nothing. And, you know, in the playoffs, when things ratchet up, they, everything gets you don't want to give up the rim, right? You you don't. And so you're willing to give up Jimmy Butler mid-range jumpers. Hockey, it's... I mean, Kawhi is, a, is a, a different animal all on his own, but Kawhi beat them with largely mid-range jumpers, right? He, his ability off the bounce, he, he could get... He every now and then he would hit a three pointer. He would pull from three. You wanted to keep him away from the rim off the free throw line. So you live with those mid range jumpers. I think Jimmy Butler is it's he's doing that. It's he was bad in the regular season. Maybe something was off with him. Maybe he just didn't want to work as hard. He he it certainly feels coasting in terms of jump shooting anyway until he got to the playoffs because he either he went to the rim and he got to the free throw line or generated offense for his teammates through kickouts, right? Now there comes to it. It gets to a point where it's Jimmy Butler time, Jimmy G buckets as I knew him in Chicago, because that's where I went to school. I, I watched him in his rookie year and throughout the entire time I was living there. Jimmy G buckets, he finds a way to get things done. And so, you know, the jump shooting comes it's it's the price the Bucks are paying for keeping him off the free throw line out of the paint. 
right? He he's able to better get in a groove now because you know it's it turns into his team in the clutch. He has the ball. He makes the decision. Yeah, that's a good point. Is that it, basically Jimmy? What he's shown a remarkable amount of is just at times taking whatever he wants through brute force. We're talking about this emerging presence as a tip-in guy on the offensive glass. Even though that's not typically his role, sometimes he'll just squeeze into it. A guy who hits floaters in the lane, a guy who gets into the middle of the floor and draws fouls like Steph Curry coming down on the pick and roll. He He's so changeable like Dwayne Wade. And then suddenly that pull-up jumper comes in and you realize it's just Jimmy a lot of the time taking what he wants and then at the end of the game taking what you give him because defenses clamp down in so many ways. Jimmy's like, okay, I'm going to shoot the jumper then. And the thing is, he is a basketball player supreme. He is not a specialist at any one thing. He isn't Duncan Robinson. He isn't Kyle Lowry. He isn't anything. He's just a basketball player who will come in and do anything on the court at any given time. Spot up for three, fine. Rumble into the lane, fine. Poster dunk, fine. Floater, crab dribble, euro step, whatever. He'll like he'll do it. Pass, spray from the middle of the court, the middle of the court to the corner. He does it all, and so it's been it's been fun to watch because he is one of my favorite players. But let's let's talk about where this series is going then, and what we think about the rest of the series. Is this sustainable for Miami, or is there a tidal wave of Bucks basketball that's coming back? I think that. Weirdly, my answer is both. The The Bucks will have their moments. Giannis will have is the MVP for a reason. Likely will win it again, right? Or, yeah. Yeah, likely will win it again. I was going to say, I think he's already won it, but that was Defensive Player of the Year. He will have his moments. You can't contain someone like Giannis for... You can only contain him for so long. So... That will happen, but I think what Miami is doing is sustainable on the defensive end. I think one of the things that they are doing really well is that they are loading up against Chris Middleton. Obviously, when Giannis is off the floor, Middleton is the the Bucks' go-to. He's where the ball is going, and then everything happens off of that. But I noticed that they were loading up against Middleton even when Giannis was on the floor. So you have, you know, if you have a lesser three-point shooter out there, his defender, whoever that lesser three-point shooter is, his defender is in help. Um, He's at the elbow or um, if it's further back, he's, you know, he's in the, he's one foot in the paint pretty much. They are walling up against Chris Middleton. And I think that's a very interesting thing that I haven't seen. I haven't watched as much Bucks as I probably should have this year because, you know, of how often their games are routes. And so, you know, I could turn it off then. But I haven't watched a team be able to load up against both Giannis and Middleton effectively. And I think that Miami has the guys to do that. I think that's a good way to put it is that identifying where the Bucks are weaker outside of Giannis and still finding that middle ground of containing him so that he's not 
running rough shot on his way to 38 points in 29 minutes or something like that. Very impressive. And as far as the the um, following the Raptors, you know, idea. Well, originally Stan Van Gundy's of forming a wall, I suppose. The the Heat <laughs> main, maintaining the shell of their defense a lot of times and not ever letting it break apart. Pretty impressed with how they did that. And I think, man, this is if Giannis struggles a lot once again with trying to find teammates off of his off of what he commands. The questions will be asked of him whether he, especially now that we've seen Donovan Mitchell, Jamal Murray, who we'll talk about next, guys like that come in and dominate as guys who operate in the pick and roll and just these shot makers. And, you know, Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker deserve credit in that in that facet as well. Guys who look so dangerous during the game, right? Like every possession guarding those guys in the pick and roll is a tightrope for the for the defender, the big man and the guy chasing over top the guard to play. Like you can't have a misstep because these guys are shot makers. If you let them get to their spot too many times in a game, you're dead. And so looking at guys like that, Pascal Siakam isn't there. You know, Giannis Antetokounmpo isn't there. Definitively those guys aren't there. Even to some extent, LeBron James at times during games isn't there. He just, the creation off the dribble isn't really there. He needs to get to the bucket. Jimmy Butler appears to be there for game one. Will he continue to be, keep being there? And so I, I'm very interested to see how Giannis plays to his strengths as the Heat works so hard to take them away, considering that Giannis's game isn't adjustment-based. It's just a guy who's overpowering on the floor. How does he look to embolden himself even though so much of what he likes is being taken away. That's interesting to me. But let's swing it over to the Western Conference then. Hopefully you've had, I know you had the whole night, but maybe 45 extra minutes is enough for you to, <laughs> to digest the, uh, the Nuggets and the, uh, the Jazz. Two gunslingers, Jamal Murray, Donovan Mitchell, they were the story of the series. But what did you think about Jokic and Gobert in Game 7? It's funny because... Going into the series, I think everybody, or not everybody, but a lot of people that I saw were saying that Jokic is going to play Gobert off the floor, right? He's going, they're going to go at him. He is not going to be able, Gobert is not going to be able to contribute enough offensively, especially just as the role guy, to be able to manufacture enough. And I think... It's. I think it's fair to say that for the first four games, largely the the Jazz took what they wanted from the Nuggets. I think Donovan. I I had a, a couple of friends texting me um, asking if Jokic was always this bad defensively, and you know I would I would tell them I don't think he is bad. He he positionally gets to the right spots most of the time it's just against donovan mitchell being able to you know throw the ball up and it'll go in the basket there's there's not a whole lot you can do he he's twisting him around by top Jokic, and i don't think enough has been made about the fact that Jokic was the one who scored the basket that put them up tonight he 
It wasn't even the highlight package, man. I watched like the replay of the game. They didn't even show the game winning shot. That's because I think (laughs) basketball, they hate big men. I swear to God, they hate big men. They didn't want to show a hook shot winning it. But it was a hell of a shot, man. He spun six times, the whirling dervish, and threw the ball up. Sorry to to interject, but they didn't even show it in the highlight package. Like in Canada, on TSN Sports Center, they skipped right to Gary Harris's tip away from Donovan Mitchell. They didn't show the game winning basket. If it's a jump shot from Donovan Mitchell, 100%, that's all we see. Or, sorry, not from Donovan Mitchell or Jamal Murray. But since it was a hook shot from Jokic, we didn't even see it. Huh. I did not. Well, I haven't watched any of the any of the highlights of that. I just, you know, the the, the multiple angles of um, Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray dapping it up after the game, That's I saw, I saw a lot of that. But I guess that, now that you mention it, I haven't really, well, I haven't seen any of the highlight packages, like I said. But my point is that my whole point of it was that Jokic is he's a generational a, a generational passer. He is light he's nimble on his feet. He will, you know, he always finds a way to get back into it, right? He he's he's a true superstar and, you know, someone you want to build your team around. Obviously, but I think the fact that, you know, he was made a fool of by Donovan Mitchell earlier in the series has largely made people, I guess they've made their minds up about what he is as a defender. They're not paying attention to what he did the when they righted the ship. Because, you know, Jamal Murray had that three-game explosion, right? 50-42-50, I believe. Um they, you, you know, he grabs all the headlines and what Jokic is doing flew under the radar, even though the game plan is built around the, the jazz defensive game plan is built around, you know, containing Jokic. That, yeah, that's a good point. And what you said about Jokic defensively, I think is also apt as well. He makes the reads. It's just when it comes to a guy like Donovan Mitchell, typically Donovan Mitchell is very changeable and rapid in the lane. He's quick. He's a tough guy for big men to stick with, and that's why you always see he's not a guy who finishes through those big... Like, Jamal Murray is a guy who goes up against big men, and he'll bounce, and he'll lay it in. Donovan Mitchell is always scooping on that last step because he's so lithe and slithery in the lane, and that's really tough for a guy like Jokic to stick around with. And, man, what do you... Okay, so when we're talking about Nuggets... And the Jazz. And we had two teams that they fought their way out of it, but it was a seven-game series. And when we're looking at what's next, man, because the Clippers await. What do you think about the Nuggets versus the Clippers? Any, like, a cursory glance, a Cliff Notes version. What do you think are the highlights? First of all, shout-out to Gary Harris. World-class effort. I love Gary Harris. I think at one point, once upon a time, I was trying to decide between making a Jamal Murray video versus a Gary Harris video. I think Gary Harris has more upside. I think he's defensively, I'm not sure, but offensively, goodness gracious. That's what I thought once upon a time. You know, his shooting has has gone away. If he ever finds it again, he'll be obviously a much more dangerous player, but 
it's just if he is a non-factor offense, then the Clippers just have so many, so many different tools, so many weapons to throw at Jamal Murray, and the I necessarily know if I have any idea how the Clippers are planning on defending Jokic. So I won't I won't speak to that, but it's if Jamal Murray can keep on keeping on offensively, you know, this this series could go much longer than people expect. Okay, I'm going to pause at something and you'll tell me what you think of it. I think that provided that there's a decent matchup for him, Zubac is a better player than Montrezl Harrell and Lou Williams. And I think the matchup against Jokic will be pretty good for Zubac, at least allowing him to do things he's good at. What do you think about that? I really like Zubac. I, I think that's that's dead on. Because, you know, it, when when they were playing the Mavericks, Luka Doncic was was picking on him, and you know, there's nothing there's nothing anybody was really able to do against Luka. So, you know, the fact that Zubac was being played off the floor because Luka was going at him, I think, like like the Jokic thing early in the Jazz series, it it makes people turn off to or not pay attention to the the positives he's bringing because you know. I think because of that series that Ennis Cantor had against the Rockets, you know, where Billy Donovan was like, can't play Cantor. I think that has shortened people's, or it feels to me that it shortened people's attention spans in terms of what they are willing to focus in on or pay attention to for a, a big man in a playoff series. If he if he doesn't bring it defensively or if he's getting taken advantage of defensively, then you know, then it doesn't really matter what he's doing on the other end. And I don't think that's fair. Um, so I agree with your point that this is the matchup that will keep Zubac on the floor. And the longer they can extend his minutes, the more potent the Montrez Harrell Lou Williams minutes become because you know, you're not you're not overstretching. Trez is a guy with a high motor and he will go at you. But typically that's a guy you'd rather have in a more muted role, right? So I I I think you hit the nail on the head. Okay, cool. I'm glad that, that somebody agrees with it. And somebody whose uh, basketball opinions I revere as much as yours. So we'll do kind of a rapid fire Lakers and Blazers. Big takeaways from that series, obviously, to my mind, is that Nurkic wasn't all the way back. And, you know, he didn't have to be. The Blazers weren't supposed to be anything special this year. Nurkic, still at his peak, was near a top 20 player. The future could still be bright next year. CJ McCollum had a broken back, and he was still playing, I guess. Dame is cold as hell. He's getting more and more abrasive in how he dismantles teams in the pick and roll. He's been the NBA's king of the pick and roll for, I would say, if not four years, five years. He's just been 
unconscious in that play type. It doesn't matter if it's Zach Collins, Whiteside, Nurkic, Myers Leonard when he was there. He'll run it with anybody. Impressive stuff. But as far as the Lakers who have moved on, what did you like from this series? Did you think it was a big step for Anthony Davis? Did you think that was LeBron asserting himself as a certain level of player? And what do you think about their lack of difference makers at the guard positions? Well, I think I think it's dangerous because the Whiteside Nurkic combo allowed them to play their two bigs. They allowed the two bigs to play rather and you know, I know this is not a new idea that I'm having, but the further we go into the playoffs, the more Anthony Davis will have to play the five. And that's it's it's pretty obvious that 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 for the Lakers to be successful, AD playing the five will have to be more prominent. But like you said, the Lakers have a lack of difference makers. It's just you don't know where the offense is going to come from. And AD has done a great job asserting himself when LeBron sits because for the most part, even the first the first couple of games in the playoffs, when LeBron sits, the Lakers lose their identity. And suddenly, and you've seen it every time on every LeBron team. It's that he is so, yeah, he is, he is the center of the universe, right? And so when he, when he sits, teams struggle with what to do without him. And I think Anthony Davis has, if he is the best, player on the floor better than LeBron even then I I don't think it matters that the other guys aren't really doing anything but teams are going to make Anthony Davis work and they will need help from their bench and I think whether it's the I think that the Rockets have a real chance to to beat the Lakers like more real oh, than I think baby you're making me so happy <laughs> with this prediction. I just think that, you know, it's it's the exact thing that I was talking about. It's when the Rockets have their when the Rockets have their two going, which is to say James Harden and Eric Gordon. No disrespect to Russell Westbrook. I <laughs> I am a fan of how Russell Westbrook has, you know, changed his game or rather gotten back to what makes him so effective at his game this year with Houston, especially after the Capella trade. Um, he's come back to earth since then. But I think that, you know, if James Harden does what he does and Eric Gordon keeps playing the way he's been playing, even if Russell Westbrook isn't fully back, and, you know, people say he is explosive, even if he isn't fully back, if he can contribute more than what he has contributed, not necessarily being the second option. But I think I think they have a real shot just because I trust I, I trust LeBron and AD more than I trust Harden and Russ, but I trust the Rockets, everyone else, more than I trust anybody on the Lakers. So... Mm. And also the thing is, yeah, a big difference will be how, like how they guard Harden. Who, who's taking that matchup? Because that, 
I mean, to my eye, is it going to be Kuzma? And Kuzma, I think, has stepped up significantly as a you know a one-on-one defender. But how he you know attacks screens defensively, I think, still needs work. What I he's been really good at staying down, I think, which is a big deal against Harden, usually. But the thing is, Harden, if you stay down, like that shot is going to go up. So if Harden is on a heater, I don't know who they stick on him, really. That is supposed to kind of stop him. I love that you bring up Eric Gordon because Russell Westbrook is one of the best drivers in the league. We've known this for a long time. Eric Gordon has been one of the most underappreciated rim runners of the past 10 years in basketball. I think he is so much more athletic than he looks. And his first step is blindingly quick. And he's so much stronger, too. He's just this wonderful. He's kind of like the round mound of rebound, except he's like the round mound of driving the ball, which isn't really fair because he's not like actually fat or even chubby. He just has chubby cheeks. So but I think that's why people underrate him. He's still shooting in the like in the series against Oklahoma City, 39 percent from the floor, like 18 percent from three. It's terrible. But he just occupies a role in Houston that's so important and that a lot of players I don't think can fit. So I I do love Eric Gordon, but I do love even more so that you're giving Houston a chance because even though it's later today, so everyone who's listening to this podcast will know if we're dumb or stupid for projecting Lakers versus (laughs) Rockets instead of Lakers versus Thunder, I'll go out on a limb. Personally, I think it's going to be Lakers-Rockets. I think that they're going to take game seven. But you, the listener, you're going to know whether this is right or wrong when you're listening. But uh, I think it's going to be Lakers-Rockets, and I would love to see that matchup borne out. Is Do you have any takeaways from the, the Thunder versus Rockets, though, before we get out of here? Just never doubt Chris Paul. Goodness gracious. You know, it's, I, was, I was thinking about doing a video for him just of two-for-ones, just so I could show players and you know fans in general just how good he is at maximizing possessions and getting the most out of the amount of time they have especially you know and the best way to do that was two for ones but the way he elevates his teams and the way he has them in in a position to beat the rockets is it's not insane to me because this is what Chris Paul does. He, you, you can doubt him for being a small guard, for being old, but when he gets on the court, man, he is just, he is just going for the jugular every single second. Yeah, I agree. He's one of the best in-game management. So even if a team is superior to his own, he can, he'll game the system. Like he runs every single permutation of every single play, I think, before he trots it out. And the thing is, when he's handling the game, and maybe, you know, the saddest thing is that I've I've held the belief all year that the Rockets became a worse team when they traded away Chris Paul. I thought that. I thought that, you know, Chris Paul nominally operates as a better player than Russell Westbrook, and I thought that would be the case this year. Obviously, they thought that wouldn't be the case going into the future. That's why they made the trade. But Chris Paul is the truth. He has been the truth. And for some reason, people decided he wasn't good in Houston anymore. 
even though I think if he stays healthy, they have a, a ring and he's still not that far from the player that he was when he was injured for game six and seven against the Warriors, like one of the greatest concoctions of basketball ever. He is, he is a world ending player. His brain, his ability to get to his spots on the floor, he completely he rigs the whole game constantly in his own favor working for every single advantage, whether it's perceived or whether it's, you know, tangible or intangible. Everything is just constantly sliding his way because of his control of the game. And man, big fan of Chris Paul. Any, uh, do you have any Dort, Schroeder, uh, Gilgis Alexander takes before we get out of here? I just think that they're just, they're so, that team generates, so much chaos that going forward, you know, from here, whether they beat the Rockets or not, the fact that those those young guys had Chris Paul teaching them the game, like in their ear, like probably literally every possession of every practice, but in their ear, it will just it will elevate them to a point that I don't necessarily know that they would have gotten to without him for, you know, for, for Dorton shooter, that is for SGA. I think it accelerates his, his growth. And I think, you know, we've talked, we, we were talking about the Canadian national team, just the wonders it will do for SGA's career to have had Chris Paul, it, you know, and, and the experience of high pressure, playoff games like this especially going to a game seven i think all of those guys will benefit greatly from being in the moment being in a moment like this no i think that's that's probably the best point to make is that taking the you know stepping away from this thunder team even if it doesn't go perfectly right now the future is incredibly bright i shea gilgis alexander before this playoffs I was of the mind that he was the best Canadian in the NBA. But Jamal Murray, man, he's the unsustainable, unbelievable heat pump that he's been. And if it is sustainable, then, okay, he's the greatest shooter of all time going forward. But, yeah, he's uh, that's how highly I think of Gilgis, Gilgis Alexander is that I think he operates usually as the best Canadian in the NBA. So, yeah, Evan... Feels like we've we've done a decent job covering the NBA, certainly on this Raptors-centric podcast, giving the Raptors more time, which deservedly so. But now it's time for you. The floor's yours. If you'd like to plug anything or direct people a certain way, go right ahead. Oh, just um, so probably because of the podcast, people have reached out to me on Twitter. I love having you know these basketball conversations. I. And I eat, sleep, and breathe basketball. So if you would like to talk to me, um, I am on Twitter, and that's mostly where I do the talking. But YouTube, um, people who take the time to read my descriptions, I put quite a bit of effort into them. If you enjoy the video, the description is made to help elevate your enjoyment of the video. So, you know, just those two things. <laughs> Perfect sign off. I'm a big fan of that. Evan. Oh, I'm thanks so for sorry. coming on. Can I can I plug one more thing? Oh, oh hell yeah, dude. Go right ahead. Uh, so there's this like 
it's an article slash mini podcast called Minute Basketball. And oh. <laughs> this is this is not something that Samson has asked me to do, but I'm being 100% honest when I, and I recognize that it's about the time when it normally drops and it hasn't dropped yet. I get a little upset because I, I do genuinely enjoy and love the hell out of that. So minute basketball. Thank you. Thank you very much, man. Uh, for myself, yeah, you can read Minute Basketball or My New Basketball, whichever you take it in as. It's uh, the newsletter that you can find on Substack that I do with my my guy, my buddy, Louis Satzman, the extraordinary writer who's been seen all types of places, but most often Raptors Republic. And for me, if you listen to this podcast, that is enough. Evan, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on once again, man. Thank you. All right. And listener... That's it for you. That's it for me. That's it for Evan. We're all getting out of here. But whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.